Before we get to our guest, a quick message from our sponsor. We've talked a lot about Mike Lindell's products at MyPillow.com. The quality is just amazing, and everything he makes lasts forever. He's got a new product out right now that the summertime customer will just absolutely love. We've all had the slippers, and the quality on those is amazing. People rave about them. He's got the three layers of comfort, where he's morphed that technology into the summertime sandals. They look like Crocs, but they're much more comfortable and long-lasting. Again, the proprietary three-layer technology that will give you extreme comfort in these sandals to wear around uh, for the rest of your summers, actually. So how can you get these? You can go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CDM to get the massive discounts he has on for the launch of this product. But just don't look at the sandals. Mike has over 600 products. If you're looking for household goods or apparel, don't go to the big box communist retailers that support the cabal. Support the Patriots, support cdm.press using pro, promo code CDM and get the best discounts available at mypillow.com. And now let's get to our guest. So welcome back to American Conversations. Um, today we have a, a guest, which I'm very proud to have on the show, uh, Dr. Lawrence Sullen, who was a former U.S. Army colonel retired, but also has an extreme background in the, uh, I guess, bioweapons research at Fort Detrick, et cetera, and also a very successful civilian career. So, uh, doctor, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Christine, for having me. So let's just start with your uh, background. I, I said before the show I wouldn't do it justice, so uh, please explain to our audience uh, how you obtained your expertise. Yes, well, I have a, a doctoral degree in human physiology from a medical school, and I actually had uh, two parallel careers. In my civilian career, uh, the first half of it, I was in uh, basic and clinical research, including uh, some time at the uh, U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick. Uh, but eventually, because I, I worked on signal and waveform analysis, I did a lot of computer analysis, and I eventually uh, migrated into the uh, IT industry uh, internationally, uh, working uh, for companies like Hewlett-Packard and, and IBM. Now, in, uh, together with that, I had a, a military career in the U.S. Army Reserve. I uh, had... Uh, uh, branch qualifications and assignments in special forces, infantry, uh, chemical and medical services. And I was considered a, an expert on uh, biological and chemical warfare defense uh, in the US uh, Army. Uh, I also served in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq and did a special operations uh, mission uh, to Africa as well. Uh, so. Basically, that's those are my uh, two careers that I had, uh, both in the military and, and in civilian life. I am fascinated with your thoughts, uh, which I've seen in, in uh, stuff you've written recently on what exactly the U.S. government has been doing with its bioweapons research over the last couple of decades. It's obviously not what we thought it was. So can you give us your thoughts on that? Uh, maybe take a step back from what from the point of when you were involved in it and where it is now? Well, uh, the, I think I could best describe uh, that uh, mm -hmm. in describing what has happened in the last two years with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, I've written extensively uh, since the beginning of the pandemic about it. And it's really been uh, 
in, in four different areas. First, the, the laboratory origin of the COVID-19 virus, uh, and also the U.S. government uh, uh, cover-up of the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Mm -hmm. And I've written extensively about uh, China's uh, biological warfare program, and, and also uh, China's massive infiltration of U.S. virus research programs. And uh, that is really one of the foci which I've been concentrating on investigating. Uh, and it really parallels what's been happening in the scientific community in general in terms of the development of technologies, which has, has allowed what they call gain-of-function research, which is really, when you're dealing with viruses, is really increasing the infectivity and the lethality of viruses. Uh, now, this uh, actually began to occur uh, in China as well as in the United States just after the first SARS pandemic, which is 2002 and 2004. And at that time, uh, China decided that they weren't going to investigate uh, the traditional biological weapons that they had been previously, things like anthrax or, or your traditional uh, viruses that they were going to create are what are called biotechnology weapons. And uh, they were be started using uh, the techniques that were actually largely developed outside of China, in particular in the United States. So starting around the 1990s, uh, there has been a wave or wa wave after wave of Chinese scientists coming to the United States uh, to learn the techniques and bring them back to China, and I've called it a scientific chain migration, where in the beginning, in the 1990s, many of these scientists were from the People's Liberation Army, and they were coming to uh, not only universities, but U.S. defense laboratories, including at Fort Detrick. And some of these Chinese scientists would, would not go back to China. Uh, most of them did go back to China and started using, you know, the skills and, and knowledge and technologies that they obtained in the United States, but some of them stayed in the United States and uh, actually became permanent residents or, or or even U.S. citizens, but they continued to work with their Chinese uh, colleagues back in mainland China, including the People's uh, Liberation Army. So what we've seen is uh, a collaboration going on with uh, many of the scientists in the United States, not just the sci Chinese scientists who came and stayed here, but also U.S. scientists who, who felt that if they work with the Chinese, they would get more grants, more publications, you know, and more students working with them. So there was an incentive uh, for uh, American scientists to work with Chinese scientists on mainland China, including some of them who are in the People's Liberation Army. And this is how uh, together the United States or scientists in the United States and scientists in China began to jointly uh, uh, utilize these techniques, which we call gain of function, uh, mm -hmm. modifying genetically these viruses. So essentially you're creating new viruses. So the, uh, the COVID-19 virus, which was uh, developed uh, uh, in China, but uh, the Chinese scientists there were working with American scientists. And uh, in, in many respects, you can say that uh, the American scientists uh, co-developed COVID-19. Mm -hmm. 
Lawrence, the, you know, when I first, when COVID first happened, um, I very early on in early 2020, I, I started reaching out to some people that were the authors of the February 2020 Lancet article where they declared that it was not a lab leak. And I didn't really realize, you know, what a close club this was of you know, international consortium of scientists with laboratories all over the world and people going out to bat caves and taking the bats back and, you know, humanizing mice and trying to figure out if the next coronavirus, the, you know, the 800,000 that hadn't been detected was a goal. And, and, and I thought to myself, well, this is, this is Frankenstein uh, science, because why would you go out and try to look for, in, encroach upon nature to look for something bring it back to a lab and see if it wouldn't infect human beings. Now, the overall purpose of this is what? A bioweapon or they're looking for science? I mean, seriously, because if you talk to some of these people, they, they're not from the same planet that we're all from because it's so dangerous. Why are we involved? Why is anybody involved with this? Is it really a, a weapon, a bioweapon? Or is, is it real science? Well, you could look at it from both standpoints. Uh, I, I think... Uh, the American scientists are, their argument has been that uh, these viruses naturally evolve to the point where they jump from animals to humans. And they're saying if they do these kinds of genetic experiments with these viruses, they can predict, you know, when uh, a virus uh, will, you know, move from animals to humans and therefore they'll be able to create vaccines and other treatment you know, beforehand, so when the jump actually occurs, that uh, they'll be prepared to treat this new disease. Now, the problem is uh, these kinds of jumps actually don't happen very often to begin with. And what they ended up doing, uh, even though they may have had, you know, good motives to prevent disease in the future, uh, what they ended up doing was accelerating evolution and they essentially created new viruses. Now that's on the American side. On the Chinese side, their program, and they were doing essentially the same types of gain of function experiments in China, but their program is linked to the, to the military, to the bioweapons program. And uh, it, you know, it, I'm not saying this myself, but if you go back to 2016 to the 13th uh, five-year plan of the Chinese Communist Party, they mandate the fusion of civilian and military research. So essentially everything that goes on in China in terms of, uh, of research, in particular, you know, in viruses and bacteria, those are linked to the military. So they have a joint civilian military research program in China. So the, the COVID-19 virus was essentially part of that biological warfare program. And, and it's, that type of virus is actually described in Chinese military doctrine, which we've translated. And they talk about, you know, not just viruses that kill a lot of people. They also talk about viruses uh, that are highly infective, but have a low lethality rate. And, they, uh, and, and also that these viruses uh, should have plausible deniability. And they say this again in the military doctrine, they say you should be able to you know, blame nature. So you can release this virus, it spreads around the world or, or it spreads within a certain population, but you can say, well, it came, it jumped from, you know, animals to humans. So they, they, they describe this plausible deniability. They also describe it in Chinese military doctrine as being used in pre-war conditions, not during war, 
but essentially to debilitate a society, to debilitate an economy, or to debilitate uh, opponent military forces. So this is all wrapped into uh, China's biological warfare doctrine, and they carry it out with these joint military-civilian uh, research programs. Uh, so uh, the, the American approach is the scientists, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, but I think in the end, what they were looking for is, as I said earlier, is, you know, more grants, uh, you know, more students, more publications, more prestige and and more promotions. So they, they saw this as an opportunity to be on the cutting edge. Uh, and they worked with the Chinese uh, on these different projects because the Chinese had a lot of the bats and the bat viruses that they were collecting. So, you know, it was really a, a professional, a financial, uh, an academic advancement uh, program for these scientists in the United States to do this cutting edge uh, gain of function research. But uh, as we all learned, it, it's turned out very badly. So why would so the, do, you, do you think that, that this helps the Chinese at all? I mean, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Explain, explain yeah. what, what the Chinese gain with this type of COVID crisis all over the world. Well, you can see what it's done to the to the U.S. society and the U.S. economy. It's you know, it's it's weakened the United States to, to a, a significant extent. If you talk about the uh, the lockdowns and what that did, you know, economically, if you talk about the society and especially the children, how they were affected. So and uh, the U.S. military now is being affected by these vaccine mandates. So, you know, I don't know. I can't say that they predicted all these things, but I think they they certainly uh, benefited from it. And as I said earlier, this scientific chain migration, these Chinese scientists coming to the United States, uh, there's a critical mass of Chinese scientists in the United States, many from the, the Chinese military. And it is really they've basically colonized U.S. research to the point that uh, the funding that U.S. taxpayers are giving for research in the United States is 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 benefiting China. So the American research programs have become essentially an extension of the Chinese research programs. And many of that those studies and the information from those studies are feeding back into China's biowarfare program. What do you think about the connections between, you know, we all know the World Economic Forum, the Klaus Schwab's, the Bill Gates, they have an agenda, which they've written and very, very open about to, you know, depopulation, sustainability, uh, you'll own nothing and be happy. How, I've always wondered, you know, who's pulling the strings on all this, because it kind of, there's kind of, it benefits each other. I mean, the, the globalism agenda and the Chinese um, basically are morphed into one animal. I mean, do you, do you have any insight into that? Well, I agree with what you said. You know, it's really a combination of uh, the ruling class in the United States, the oligarchy, which controls mm -hmm. the United States. It's not the American people anymore. Uh, we're no longer a functioning constitutional republic. Uh, so you have this uh, ruling elite in the United States who are allied with people in the World Economic Forum and also the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Uh, they basically have the same agenda, the same governance model, uh, you know, where you have, I mean, you can call it communism, you can call it globalism, you can, I sometimes call it neo-feudalism, 
But the outcome mm-hmm. is the same. You have a few people who are controlling everything, who are wealthy and well taken care of. And then you have, you know, billions of, of serfs, uh, mm-hmm. people who simply exist to support these this ruling class. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's it's really the same governance model and they're really all working together for the same kind of outcome where especially what they are hoping to create. And this is part of the destruction of the United States. They don't see a world of, of nations. They simply see a world of, of land and people to exploit. Mm-hmm. How is big pharma tied to this? I mean, they're obviously benefiting immensely from these vaccines. Um, and that's like a whole nother component. I mean, you, do you think they're just doing this for money and, and to gain control over people? You know, we, do you, do you have an insight on all this biosurveillance type stuff that they're, that is talked about a lot? Well, they're doing it for the money. They're doing it for profit. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we, we now know that these COVID-19 uh, vaccines are, are neither safe nor effective and they're still promoting them. Even even to children, which I which I think is you know barbaric, mm-hmm. uh, you know injecting children with these things, especially with the, the high number of of uh, deaths and adverse events that we've never seen before uh, in these vaccines. But uh, I you know I know the head of Pfizer uh, recently talked about, and I think it was at the World Economic Forum, in fact, where he talked about uh, you know uh, putting something in the viruses. I mean in the vaccines such that you could tell if they were vax, people were vaccinated or not, you know, in terms of compliance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think they're, they're certainly capable of putting uh, things in these vaccines to have, you know, certain types of uh, effects or, or, or outcomes. And I think that's really where the great danger is, because I think we've learned a great deal about the dangers of, of, of untested or not fully tested vaccines, as we've seen with these COVID-19 uh, vaccines. Hmm. Lawrence, what, what are your thoughts about the, the Brick Road initiative uh, in, in China, in terms of, you know, in light of the, the, the COVID crisis? Oh, you mean the Belt and Road Initiative? The Belt and Road Initiative, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that's been going on a, a long time, and, and, and it's really China wants to, you know, connect the world to China, both uh, but through the sea lanes and also uh, o- over land. Uh, and they, they've been uh, giving out uh, loans to a lot of these uh, countries that, that really need us, countries like in Africa or other third world countries. And they essentially use the loans to, to take over the ports uh, or, or, mm-hmm. or other, or other uh, natural resources or, or other uh, resources from these uh, poor countries by uh, giving out loans. Now, as you know, United States in the past has always give grants and, and not loans. So there's a big difference here. Uh, China wants everybody obligated to them and every, you know, all the routes uh, going uh, to China, uh, you know, economically, that all the countries of the world are connected uh, and dependent upon uh, China. Uh, but they also use this as uh, to extend their uh, military. I mean, one example I can give, which is really the flagship of the Belt and Road Initiative, is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which uh, connects uh, mm-hmm. south uh, southwestern 
China uh, into Pakistan, down into the ports of, of, of Karachi and, and Gwadar. So, uh, it, you know, it's not only, uh, you know, getting a route uh, into the Indian Ocean, but in parallel with that, China is building uh, military bases uh, in Pakistan uh, in order to control the vital sea lanes of the northern Indian Ocean and isolate right. India, for example. So these uh, military bases that they're building uh, on the Arabian Sea, which is the southern coast of Pakistan, really links up to China's already operating naval base in Djibouti, which is, you know, at the, the mouth of the Red Sea and the entrance of the Suez Canal. The bases in Pakistan are at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. And these bases are connected to the South China Sea. So what they're doing is creating choke points uh, with their military and using, uh, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative as a way not only to economically control uh, regions, but also militarily control regions. Well, you know, I, I can't help but think in some of the research and reporting that we've done on COVID and the, the, the um, contracts that U.S. pharmaceutical companies have with foreign governments in terms of uh, how the Chinese negotiate and also how the farmers negotiate now. And what I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around is the um, coercive coercion. That's economic coercion that's involved by the U.S. pharmaceutical companies, not just here in the United States, having no liability. You know, if something goes south on the for the vaccine injured, but they're doing this all over the world in conjunction with the approval of the U.S. government. Yeah, well, it's both the U.S. government and many governments throughout the world are now promoting uh, the Pfizer vaccines, and as you correctly point out, they've. Uh, you know, they have no liability for these mm -hmm. for these experimental vaccines, which are obviously causing a, a, a lot of harm and not being, you know, very effective in, in terms of uh, preventing the disease in people or even preventing transmission of the disease. It has a very narrow window of effectiveness if that effectiveness exists at all. Certainly, uh, you know, they violated one of the biggest uh, rules of, of epidemiology by doing vast, uh, mass vaccinations during a pandemic, which simply drives the mutation of the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, so you end up with the virus mutating more quickly and the vaccines could never keep up with that kind of mutation. I, I, as we well know, the, uh, the Pfizer vaccine is, is uh, essentially ineffective against the Omicron variant. So they're still making huge profits uh, through this vaccine, even though it's, you know, not only ineffective, but, uh, you know, I can be considered detrimental. Where do you see the fault line in terms of uh, so many people that have been involved in this area, you know, in the past? We've, we've had many guests who've come on who are shocked by what's going on in the pharmaceutical uh, industry in terms of a lack of ethics. We're, we're, who's responsible for this? How high up does it go? Is, is it, does it land at the Oval Office? Does it land at Tony Fauci's feet? I mean, did Francis Collins resigned, you know, from NIH, but he's not totally out of the picture because his approval is on a lot of these programs. Well, of course, the, the bucks always stops at the White House because they're, the, the, the White House is ultimately responsible for what's going on in these agencies. But you know, it's crystal clear that the Food and Drug Administration, their entire 
program. I don't. They don't even look at food anymore. Actually, they don't study food anymore. They study just drugs, and the drugs are are, are directly linked to uh, the pharmaceutical industry. So the pharmaceutical industry actually funds research that is conducted mm -hmm. by the Food and Drug Administration, and, and basically the same thing is going on. Uh, with the CDC. Now, if you can say that the Food and Drug Administration is contaminated by the by Big Pharma, you can say that the uh, Centers for Disease Control is politically contaminated. I mean, the advice that they're giving, dishing out, is, is basically scientific misinformation. And they're doing that because, uh, you know, the people over them, the politicians, are insisting that they uh, you know, support things like these vaccine mandates, and they can't support them unless they, uh, you know, essentially lie about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. So it, it's really at the very highest levels that, uh, you know, that is controlling uh, all these, uh, you know, terrible things in terms of, of, uh, of science and, and misuse of science and medicine and the harms uh, these drugs or vaccines are causing. Do you think it's as simple as as uh, profit over people? Yes, it's that simple. I, I there's no use, you know, expanding on that. They're interested in profits. They don't care very much about people. They only care about people to the extent that you know, if there's an overwhelming number of deaths or illnesses, that it will cut into their profits. But they, you know, they cut they they manage to get around that by you know providing a vaccine and making billions of dollars without any liability whatsoever. So th this was, yeah. a, you know, a great move for, for, uh, uh, for big pharma. It's a, it's a great business model for, for, for a bunch of crooks. Yes. <laughs> so let, let's shift the, the uh, conversation a little bit. I mean, obviously we have an invasion going on at our Southern border. There's concern that a lot of teachers, a lot of these people are military out of Venezuela or Cuba or wherever. Um, We've got China possibly even targeting certain types of races or peoples with these uh, bioweapons. How do we save the republic from here, in your opinion? Well, I think we first have to recognize what's actually going on. And, uh, of course, I'm expressing my opinion now. Uh, the first thing we have to say is, is Joe Biden is not president. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he was... Uh, brought to power in a coup on November 3rd, 2020, uh, through a, a fraudulent election that was driven by voter fraud. So you have an illegitimate president and an illegitimate uh, administration. So for me, that's that's the starting point. Uh, mm -hmm. If we, you know, if we can't, uh, well, let me just say, as I said earlier, I don't believe we're a functioning constitutional republic anymore. I believe that uh, the federal government as an institution is hopelessly corrupt and that although we have elections, we don't have representative government. We essentially have a uniparty. And I've been mm -hmm. warning people not to expect too much from this so-called Republican red wave that's supposed to happen in the midterm elections. Because if history tells us anything, the Republicans you know, may not do anything. They're essentially the junior partners of the ruling class. So they've decided not to represent, you know, their traditional constituency. And they just work with the, you know, the Democrats to maintain this kind of uniparty uh, in, in Washington, D.C. So we have a situation, not only do we have 
rigged elections. And I'm not saying they're all rigged. I, I'm saying that we can't trust any of the outcomes sure. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but Georgia. also, even if, even if you elect people like Republicans, they may go to Washington, D.C. and actually, you know, ignore everything they said during the campaign. And one of the examples is, uh, you know, the first two years of the Trump administration, where the Republicans held both the Senate and the House. Now, uh, during the 2016 election, one of the big things that they say mm -hmm. is they said, the Republicans, that they're going to uh, eliminate Obamacare. And, and that was one of their main platforms. And they had two years to do it, and they absolutely did nothing. So as yeah. I said, if history is any indication, I wouldn't depend on, on uh, what the Republicans might do, even if they control both the Senate uh, and the House. And I've been advocating a, a more bottom-up approach that people can take. I call it a political insurgency. But it has to. It, it, we shouldn't expect any top-down solutions anymore. I think we, we have to, you know, go go bottom up if we want to really restore our constitutional republic. So that means getting involved at the local level, uh, you know, polling places, precinct committeemen's, uh, medical boards, bar association, that type of thing is what you're saying, essentially. Yes, I've, I've uh, uh, said that uh, we should focus on really two two of the of the amendments, the Second Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, I've uh, suggested that uh, local people first uh, start working with constitutional sheriffs and mm -hmm. uh, really focusing on on the Second Amendment, the uh, ability uh, to uh, defend yourself not only from criminals mm -hmm. but also uh, by illegal intrusions by the federal government. So this really is a program where you work with the constitutional sheriffs, you do things like uh, gun safety training, uh, uh, you know, concealed carry uh, training where, where people are prepared. Uh, now, I've talked about it in terms of what is called a state guard. Now, I'm not talking about the army or, or air national guard in each state. I'm talking about basically a, a civilian organization. And like DeSantis just set up in Florida, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, there are about, I think, 22 states now that have uh, active uh, state guards. Uh, hmm. Most of them have been have been approved, and 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 in fact, it's legal both at the federal and and, and state law level. So you're not doing anything that, that could be considered illegal whatsoever. Uh, but most of the state guards have become inactive. Uh, and many states have never actually established a state guard at all. But the idea here is uh, that you have these local people and keeping the organization flat and local, working with the constitutional sheriffs, particularly on, on the Second Amendment, but also training these people to respond to uh, natural and man-made disasters that, again, they, they could work with the uh, local sheriffs and be prepared to, uh, you know, help out in an, in an emergency. Uh, so, you know, you know, mm -hmm. that's the, the bottom up focus I've been talking about. And this gets to the point of, of the of the 10th Amendment, where uh, you the Constitution says that, you know, unless certain powers are specifically designated uh, to the federal government, that everything else devolves to the state and to citizens. And I think we've gotten away from that, way away from that. 
in terms of, uh, of the federal government accumulating power. So, you know, this would be the other focus of this uh, bottom-up effort that I talk about is to restore the powers to the states and to the local communities and, and the citizens. So uh, I don't think any, anything is really going to change in Washington, D.C., that we have to change it uh, at the local level and upwards. How do people find you, Lawrence, in your writings? Well, I, I was uh, kicked off Twitter for, for criticizing the uh, for for the COVID, <laughs> criticizing the COVID vaccines. I was also uh, kicked off LinkedIn uh, for saying that the COVID nineteen virus came from a laboratory in China. Uh, so I, I'm on Gab now. And I also uh, have a, a, a very long article about uh, COVID-19 on, on Substack. Uh, but I, I also publish papers, uh, articles fairly regularly on the Gateway Pundit. But people, if they want to write to me, I have a pretty open email address, which is lawrence.sellen at gmail.com. And if they want to, you know, contact me, they can, you know, do it that way. Well, you're welcome to contribute here at CD Media anytime also. We're very big overseas. Um, you know, and before we let you go, what do you think in Ukraine and other jurisdictions, you know, I've heard Panama, Nicaragua, where they have a lot of uh, biolabs in existence that the U.S. government is involved with. Do you have any insight into that at all as to what's happening there? Well, I wouldn't say any more than, than most people who read about this. I was actually a bit surprised that there were 46 uh, bio labs in, in Ukraine. I thought there were, you know, uh, a dozen or so. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think it has a lot less to do with uh, violations of the Biological uh, Warfare Treaty. I haven't seen any uh, information or data coming out of Ukraine or elsewhere that there are any particular violations of, of the Bio Warfare mm -hmm. Treaty. But I think it's it's a profit-making uh, mechanism for for a lot of people. You have two players here, basically. You have the the military who, who wants mm -hmm. to make these laboratories because it increases their budget and their reach, and also gives officers and some enlisted personnel a chance for promotions and and to live and work abroad. So they see it as an op that kind of opportunity. And then you have the contractors who can make a lot of money by supporting these programs mm -hmm. that are funded uh, by the military. And we know that uh, that uh, Hunter Biden and his people were very much involved in the Ukraine bio labs and made a lot of money. There. And, and others. Yeah. And there was there were also through them connections to China. So, uh, you know, I, I think it has really gotten out of control in terms of there's no accountability for what what is going on there and how the money is being spent. Uh, so so yeah. I, I think we we the country needs to be, be a better do a better job in, in in monitoring those situations. Well, Christine, do you have anything else? No, I was just going to say, I hope I hope you do right for us. And I hope you keep your eye on those biolabs because you you know more than we do. And I, I'm I'm very curious about this. Uh, you know, I I don't know where I come down, but it's hard for me to think that the people that were collecting the coronaviruses could have concluded so early on in February 2020 that it didn't come from a lab. Well, I just like to warn people, it hasn't stopped. I mean, yeah, just yeah. last year, 
there was a publication uh, by a Chinese scientist living in the United States who's funded by Anthony Fauci, who was doing gain-of-function right. research on a more dangerous virus, uh, Zika virus, uh, with colleagues in, in China. And if you look at the acknowledgement section of that particular paper, again, just last year, mm -hmm. uh, they, the author, the Chinese scientist author from the University of Texas thanked uh, a People's Liberation Army officer for help in designing and executing the experiments. So the gain of function is still going on. The U.S. government is still funding these experiments together with uh, that uh, with two scientists that are working with the People's Liberation Army. So really, it, it, nothing has changed. Except for the fact that every time that Anthony Fauci is asked by Rand Paul about gain of function, he tells him he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, well, that's just the dodge. I mean, we know what it right. is. He, he, what they do is simply redefine it in a right. way that, uh, you know, gives them a cop out in terms of any responsibility for what is what has been and is still going on. That's right. That's right. Thank well, you. Dr. Sullivan, we'd like to have you back on down the road as things develop. Um, and uh, thank you for coming on and taking time out of your day. We appreciate it. You're very knowledgeable. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Take care.